This season, the Thursday Club on Fulhamish is sponsored by Green King Sport. And right now, until the 29th of October, you can get 20% off all drinks at any Green King Sports pub an hour before, during, or an hour after any televised sport. This applies to all the football plus the Rugby World Cup final this weekend. To get this deal, download the Green King Sports app. And if you head to a pub this weekend to watch any kind of match, you'll be able to get 20% off your drinks while you're there. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James. Welcome to the show. What an exciting podcast we have in store for you today here on the Thursday Club because... Marco Silva has signed a brand new contract extension at Fulham, keeping him at the club until 2026. And in this episode, we know about the news. So we'll be reacting to it and giving all our analysis on the limited news that we know about it so far. But what could it mean for Fulham going forward? Will there be a, an inverted commas, war chest incoming for Silver and Co. Also in this podcast, we will preview Sunday's trip to the Amex as we face Brighton and Hove Albion on the South Coast and we'll answer a load of your emails at the end. For the first part of this Thursday Club, I'm joined, well, I'm joined for the whole thing by Jack Collins. Hello. Hello, Sammy. Hello, listeners. How are we doing? Good, thank you. And um, we've pulled him out of a uh, important meeting at some boulangerie somewhere in Paris because it's a big day. Peter Rutzer, bonjour, ça va? Bonjour, ça va bien, Sammy, ça va bien. Got to jump on for it when the big news breaks at Fulham's. Yeah, so you're in Paris today for the PSG versus AC Milan match, but you've donned your Fulham chapeau uh, for a little bit because of the big (laughs) breaking news yesterday. Marco Silva signs until 2026. We discussed it last week, Peter, and he said, like, not much had changed, but the offer was there. Clearly, Marco eventually got round to... uh, picking up the piece of paper, signing on the dotted line. And and you described last week, Peter, that it's possibly the biggest contract that Fulham will be signing in a long time. Do you still stand by that? I mean, it feels hugely significant. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely massive. Absolutely massive. Um, you can't overstate the importance of it. It's incredibly significant. Probably the most important signature in Shahid Khan's tenure at Fulham, I would suggest. Especially with this season, it was the one question that came out of the window, the one question that came out of the summer, and it's a topic that was only going to grow, I think, the longer the delay went on, the more conversations, what does this mean? And it won't just be people outside Fulham, Fulham fans who'd ask that question, it would be players, you know, prospective signings, um, do the club then have to pivot and plan ahead for a replacement, all those kind of things. But the, the fact that he's put pen to paper, signed for... What, what is another three years almost, it's another two full seasons on top of this one, is really important, not just for the current team and the squad, but also what it indicates about the long-term plans and ambitions of the, of the club, of the owners. You know, Marco Silva's not hidden his own ambitions, his own personal ambitions. That was part of the reason why he turned down those offers from Saudi Arabia in the summer. He wanted to be in the Premier League. And it's, you know, you can, you can see from what's come out, the wording that both Silva's used, uh, what Shahid Khan's used, that they've, they're on the, they've got on the same page. So um, 
it's incredibly significant and fantastic news really for Fulham. Yeah, Jack, what was your first thoughts when you uh, when you saw this one come through? I think it was it was more surprised than anything. Obviously, delighted with with, with the news, but you, you kind of look at it and think we came out of that game against Spurs. We weren't dreadful, but equally, it didn't look like Fulham were going to score in a month of Sundays. And you're kind of looking at it and going, this season's. I remember texting my family, being like, I think we're going to finish. 14, 15, which is to be fair, an upgrade on my, uh, my preseason prediction of 16. But I was like, you can write almost write this season off at the moment where we're, where Fulham stand with this season. It feels like there are going to be too many teams that are genuinely just quite a lot worse than us to actually end up, I think right in the relegation mix, but equally there are, I, I hold very little hope right now that Fulham are going to be able to make a push up the table and cement. And look, if you'd offered us two seasons in the Premier League where survival was comfortable and assured before we have got promoted last time, we would have all bitten your hand off for it. So I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it felt like a massive opportunity this summer to kick on from last season and it didn't feel like it was taken with both hands. And so I was thinking about it and going, why would Silver commit at this point to a long-term deal. Now, obviously it's two and a half, three years. So it's not a kind of time in Alan Pardew, eight years for life kind of deal. But you kind of look at it and think, wow, that's a really big step for them to take in a week where things look pretty doom and gloom. And I think that you kind of look at the cadence of Monday's or Tuesday's podcast and you listen to it and it's like, it's all pretty downbeat. And <laughs> obviously the news came out about an hour later and the kind of tone and vibe of the podcast you'd imagine would be completely different off the back of that and I think that goes to show how important generally it feels like Silver is to this side and therefore locking him down is is a massive bonus it's now about making sure that he's happy within this space to in, you know to enable him to kick on and allow him to do what he thinks is possible with this squad because you know you get to a point with some managers I think and you go right the squad's good enough and the manager is struggling to now deal with it. And there have been plenty of examples, not just at Fulham, but across the Premier League. This feels the exact opposite. It feels like Marcus Over is trying to do things and isn't and hasn't got the players to be able to actually fully back that up. And I think that now the question becomes, all right, how do you force the hand so that Silver feels he's able to continually push this football club forward? So, Peter, the, the question that will be on everyone's lips is what does this mean for Fulham going forward? How much of an impact was Silva not signing a contract for Fulham's transfer policy in the summer? And what promises do you think Fulham will have made him? Because I think it doesn't take the brains of an archbishop to, to realise that Silva's not signing a contract unless he's been given some some promises, some offers, at least some commitment of future funds. Because I'm sure if you asked Silva whether he, you know, truthfully, honestly, maybe not under the kind of like disguise of a press conference, whether he felt fully backed in the summer, I'm sure he would say no. Yeah, I think over the summer I, I wrote about how it was just it didn't seem likely that he would sign a contract until after the window, um, and you know that window felt like it played a key part. There was obviously the interest in in himself and then other players, the uncertainty about what the, the squad would look like. In terms of your first bit of your question about whether it would impact players, it, it did. I think we we reported about you know with Willian, for instance, you know there was that delay, and part of that you know was trying to you know is is who's the is Marcus Silva around because he had that interest at a similar time? So, of course, it's a factor. And we know it's a factor for, for the squad because so many of the players come out and talk about Marcus Silva's influence 
about the project. That's a word that Marco Silva's used consistently. It's that's what's brought these players in. You know, players like Bert Leno, like Gerard Polina, like Andreas Pereira. Um, they can see what Marco Silva wants to do, the way he plays, and 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 they buy into that. Obviously, by by signing a contract to build on what Jack was saying, it it, it indicates that he feels there is um, three backing to do to progress, to, to fulfill those ambitions, as I was talking about before. Um, it's a commitment for, for three more years. And in that sense, you would expect that it will get the, the support from that. You know, the, 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 these things will all come into the negotiations. We'll find out in the next couple of days once, uh, once I'm back at, back at home, what's, 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 what's been going on. But it's, it's certainly it, the fact that he has signed it, because I think, I think we were going back at the start of the summer, coming into the summer, and obviously it was a, it was a talking point and we'd written about it a couple of times and it just, it just felt like uncertain. It didn't feel particularly certain that it would happen in the same way that there wasn't certainty about Jarpolina, in the same way there wasn't certainty about Alexander Mitrovic. It felt like it was in that bracket. Um, and now it's come through to the point where it's, it's, it's happened. And then for me anyway, when I, when, when I saw that, it was like, okay, he signed and considering where he would, the, the team was at and where he was at and how the club was looking at the start of the summer, this suggests that he's had, suggests he has had reassurances that, you know, the club can take the team forward and, and achieve what he wants to achieve. Uh, Jack, I, I feel like one thing that I thought with Marco Silva and why I was not sure that he would sign another contract is because you look at Marco Silva's managerial career, he's never stayed in one place for very long. I mean, the longest he stayed at any club was Estoril, his first club, which was only three years as well. So by this summer, it will be the longest that he's managed any club in his career. He famously, you know, moved a bit too soon, didn't he? Previously, he's been very anxious to kind of move up the levels. And that was maybe one thing for me where I thought, does Marco want the next stage? Does Marco want the next club? Because he clearly wants that, you know, top six, top eight club in the Premier League or one of the major leagues anyway, where he can step it on to the next level. So I guess from Marco's point of view, you know, why do you think he's committed for this length of time? Do you think that he realises now maybe that the, the managers at most clubs seem fairly stable and that he'll probably need to do another year or two to, to, to when he wants to get that bigger move, which none of us can blame him for eventually wanting. I think the truth of the matter is that if he'd wanted to move for, you know, a big fee, he would have gone to Saudi Arabia this summer. So clearly, if he's going to move on, it's going to be to someone who has some sort of standing. And therefore, signing a three-year contract isn't all that much of an issue, if, if you're going to take my point. And I don't want this to sound doom and gloom. But, you know, if Benfica decided they wanted another manager, which did look possible at one point a couple of years back, and we thought, oh, that could be a little bit uncomfortable, you'd imagine that they have the you know, resources slash facilities to buy someone like Marco Silva out of a three-year contract. And I would imagine that's what it is. He's, he's looking at this and going, right, there aren't all that much in, in terms of the market. There isn't all that much in terms of what's going on and, and clubs that are desperately looking for a manager. And any club that, you know, clearly having turned down just a, a money move, he's looking for a club that clearly is a, a big step up to Fulham. And, and you have to kind of bear that in mind with the Estoril move, right? You have three years there, fine. But he moved to go to Sporting. 
it wasn't like he was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to walk out here for any old job that's coming up. He moved to a massive, you know, club. Then when, and I think there was two days between him leaving Estoril and him signing the deal at Sporting. So it was clear that that time was up and that option was available to him. So that would be my thoughts on the matter. It's not necessarily about, you know, meaning that he's going to leave or any of those things. But I think that the kind of clubs that he would be wanting to leave Fulham for, and so we're talking, you know, as you say, European challenging clubs across maybe the top four leagues in Europe, any of those clubs would have the facilities if they needed to, to buy him out of this kind of contract. It's like anything when you're a club of Fulham size, you know, Manchester United come in for him, suddenly there's a conversation. But what it means at least for the for the, at least the short so certainly this season and going forward you know that Fulham are able to plan around him and around his team and around his ideas and um that's a that's a massive massive boost I mean Jack uh, there's not going to be any instant impact really other than yeah but there, I did enjoy um Marco Silva's speech that he did that I think was released today about um it was actually commemorating his 100th um managerial game in charge of Fulham not necessarily him signing a new contract but could this give a bit of a boost to the squad in in the short term or do we think in reality like Fulham and, and their results and their performances for the next at least until January when new personnel might arrive is fairly baked in no matter what Silver did contract wise it might just allow a little bit more calm around the training ground and maybe people who were considering what might happen at the end of the season will have a slightly different perspective on that now but I, I don't think it's going to have a major major impact on on-field performances. I don't think anyone's sitting there going, you know, in the middle of a game against Spurs, instead of thinking about where they're going to play the next pass, thinking about if Marcus Silva was going to leave <laughs> in, in in the summer. So in terms of impact, I think obviously it might give a morale boost, which is always a good thing, especially after a performance that wasn't great and with a tough period going on now for Fulham, it gives, you know, a, a sense of togetherness. So, yeah, I mean, maybe in, in a small small term, but... But actually, I think in terms of the bigger picture, it's probably about January. And, and, and that, you know, it comes back to it. There's a really good piece in the Times today from Alison Rudd about this, about mm. why Silver is signed. And, you know, she talks about the fact that there's a warm relationship with, with Shahid Khan, which is, which is one thing. But also about the fact that, you know, Fulham are lacking in key areas. And those two key areas are a right-footed centre-back to back up Tosin Adrobayo and Anissa Diop and Tosin seems to be off in the summer. Um, I'd suggest that Fulham will look for a right-footed centre-half and, and then we'll look for some sort of goal-scoring replacement. There are reports again in Telegraph today that Silver is a bit frustrated with the form of Raul Jimenez and then also the fact that you know Carlos Vinicius has been hit and miss throughout this season and that start of the season where we saw you know, Rodrigo Mooney's leading the line against Tottenham in the cup instead of Carlos suggested there's some underlying thing there where he just isn't convinced. And I think that if they're going to have had this conversation, considering that the, what, 48 million or so from Mitrovic is, is burning a hole in the club's pocket right now, even if some of it was spent on a Wobi, you'd imagine that there is going to be something that Fulham do in the market. And it obviously it's sprouted wings in so many ways. Is it because on team talk about the players that Fulham might look to sign. There's obviously the the relink with Sohu Jurassi, who started the season so brilliantly in Germany. I can't see him leaving Stuttgart until the end of the season. They were the ones that gave him that opportunity to kind of reignite his career. And he said that he's happy there. So I, I feel like a move for 
Jurassic in, in January is probably a no a non-starter. But there's already links, you know, to, to various players. We've seen Gift Orban linked again recently in the standard. We've seen Jenny Kitamo, who's a winger from Sporting, which is a bit of a strange one. Um, hasn't had much game time, but obviously Silva has links back to Lisbon. So what we're going to see now is an explosion of, of, of kind of news stories around the players that Fulham are linked with. And whilst there will be truth in many of them and the club will be exploring options, I think it's probably we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves to, to think, oh, three months in time, we might sign this player. This is going to be about making sure that Silva knows that if he can identify the right player, and the club will go out to try and sign them. And I think that's probably a good thing. One thing I would add as well, though, I, I do think it will have a, an impact for, for the players because I think the, the uncertainty would certainly be a factor if you're playing for Fulham because of, of Marcus Silva's project. And I think that's been so integral to the success of the last couple of years. So I think in that sense, it, it will change. I mean, we've seen players sign new deals, haven't we? We've seen Palinia sign a deal, obviously, there's the context of Bayern Munich and what that might mean for his prospective moves. So maybe slightly different, but Harrison Reed, Anthony Robinson. Um, I actually, with, with Tosin, I know you mentioned Tosin, I, I wouldn't rule out him staying. Um, uh, I wrote on Monday about how, you know, he has been injured and he's not actually that far away. So um, I, th- I, I think there is an element that it changes the, the outlook and as much as it also absolutely makes Fulham an intriguing proposition and what that does in terms of the market and what they may do. Um, there is a, there is certainly a, an element of what that means for the players because it just says the manager's committed. There's no there's no doubt, you know. The manager's contract's expiring it's at the end of the, the summer. It's like, okay. Certainly in the, it, certainly for the for this season and going forward into the into next summer, it's like, okay, the manager's committed as well. So it does provide some clarity of thought. Yeah, and Peter, like from the Khan's point of view, you know, you mentioned that, and I, I, I can't really argue with you that it's the most important uh, contract signing that the Khan's have done. And you look that um, Silver was the eighth manager that, uh, that the Khan's have had uh, under their ownership. And uh, he's only maybe a few months away from being the longest serving. Slavisa Jokanovic still the longest serving. He did just under three years. So if Silver makes it pretty much to the end of the season, he'll break that three years. And I guess Silver really had a great bargaining position. And when you read how important he clearly is to, to Shade Khan and the kind of levels that they see him as, I guess that maybe also Silver might have got himself a, a bit of a better deal as well, because you clearly see what kind of weight and influence he had over the cards. And you've seen that since he arrived. You know, I feel like Silver has had more trust than any manager previously in terms of incoming signings, even when they haven't worked out always amazingly well, the silver suggestions, you know, Rodrigo Moon is being the obvious answer. I mean, it'll happen one day um, when he gets the winner in the Carabao Cup final, all will be forgiven. But for now, I think Silva has just clearly had a level of respect that none of the other seven before him, I feel like ever quite got. Yeah. I think trust is certainly the key, the key word there. Um, We've seen that reflected in the transfer window with, with the players that have come in. And I think that just comes from being successful and being shown to be good. He's a good coach. You know, you know when you've got a good coach on your hands. You know when you've got someone who quite clearly is a promising young manager. So he's only 46. Um, so you want to maximise that. I mean, from Shaquille, Shaquille Khan's point of view, the years, uh, and Tony Khan as well, like the years before, um, Silver, you've got those years in the championship, 
got the yo-yo years. And so now you've got a coach who's not only got you into the Premier League, he looks like he can keep you there as well. Now that's, that's taken, taken a decade. I mean, that's, yeah, that's going to certainly improve your standing with them. So, um, yeah, it, just, it boils down to the fact that he is a good coach, uh, doing a good job, and uh, a lot of the things he has done have, have come off. Um, and that will give you a, a better position, absolutely. And uh, Peter, there was one um, little nugget from your article post Spurs, which was the future of of Tossin. And also, I guess there was a bit of an update on on his injury because certainly, and I, I was definitely amongst them, I was a bit dubious as to whether there really was a proper injury with, with Tossin because there'd been so much uncertainty and that's often a commonly done thing. But it looks like potentially there might be a little bit of a reprieve here and maybe a change of heart with a, with a potential new contract yeah i mean you know that that's not to say there's going to be a new contract imminent but i think the you know, we all know he was very close to joining monaco in the summer um he, the contract talks broke down with fulham um you know i think it's it looked pretty pretty nailed on that he he would go next year um he's had this groin issue which actually dates back to to last season um he then had surgery after the window was was closed. Um, I think Silver said week before last that he was about two to three weeks away. But before the the Spurs game, he mentioned he was back in individual training and he's he's close to collective training. So I think that I mean that's a positive. And we can see we can see yeah. the importance of that. I mean that came to light, didn't it, with with the way the the Tottenham game panned out and the way that poor old Calvin Bassey was targeted on that side. Um, not in my opinion, something that was necessarily entirely his fault. I think that was a collective issue, both in terms of setup and how how Fulham played through that. But yeah, I think that it's a it's a positive thing um, regarding Tosin. I, I mean, that just indicates that you know for him, I mean, the circumstances have changed. You know, he's not getting younger. He's he's still he's got his future to look for. You know, Monaco have gone out and signed other central defenders, so you know there's there's different sides to it. But I think fundamentally, you know, it's not. It's not written off, is this the point? Right, we'll leave it there for part one. Peter, thank you for coming on this morning. Enjoy the uh, PSG game tonight and uh, read on your, uh, your PSG chapeau for, for the afternoon. Nice one. Cheers, guys. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast it is Sammy here, back with just Jack Collins. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. Two of us. Off we go. Off we shall. Uh, Peter has uh, disappeared into the Parisian afternoon. God, I'm jealous of all his trips to Paris. Yeah, just... it's, it, it, it's uh, you know what? I've got to say, I'm not. I don't, like, I'm jealous of many of Peter's trips. Nice, some of the ones he's been at this weekend. I just don't buy the Paris thing. I've, got, I've said you, it forever. Don't you, this, is, this is the wrong person to be I, saying that I you don't, don't buy the Paris thing. I don't thing. buy it. I like, I, I, like, there is like, about 200 metres of Paris that's nice. What? The rest of it's a hole. Give me London any day of the week. Apart from the bed bugs thing, which does sound a little bit grim. Other than that, oh no, give me Paris every give day. Me, I mean, I, like, me I did any, live there. Or give me almost any other city in Europe, in fact. Like, like it re- I really don't buy it. I've got to say, I've got to say. But, you know, Peter's going to, I, I'd like to be at the Parc de Prance tonight to watch Paris Milan. I'll give him that. So, you know, flips and flips and roundabouts. Flips and roundabouts nah. isn't a phrase. Swings and roundabouts. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's why you're clearly not cultured enough for Paris. You say flips and roundabouts. I'm, I'm definitely not cultured enough for Paris. Give me Belgrade. <laughs> I'm much happier in Belgrade. <laughs> 
All right, let's look ahead then to Sunday's game against Brighton at the Amex. Um, another difficult one, Jack, this yeah. run in this international break. I mean, we knew it was always going to be tough, but it is especially difficult. We've had one of the four out the way. I mean, and when we know that that didn't go too well, we're not going to bother discussing the Tottenham game today. There's plenty of Tottenham discussion in uh, the Tuesday podcast. If you haven't listened to it with uh, George, Jack, Drew and Dan, uh, where they really uh, get into to the meat and uh, of the game. Me but and Jack, you're not cold enough for Paris either. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew as soon as I was saying, it's like, no, don't forget it. <laughs> um, Brighton, Jack, is obviously a difficult game. They're a very, very good team. There is, I guess, the slight caveat for this, that A, a little bit of a morale boost for Fulham. B, Brighton have a very big and, well, I say difficult game on Thursday against Ajax, although Ajax are an absolute basket case at the moment, although they're now a basket case who have got rid of their manager and might be really ready to prove a point. I, I think that certainly the way that these fixtures have fallen for Fulham over the next kind of couple of months where we've got Brighton after Europa League, Villa after Europa Conference League, then Liverpool after Europa League, it has fallen quite nice because it's definitely an advantage when you play these teams in Europe just three days after. And maybe when you play the likes of Manchester City or whatever, they've got deep enough squads and they're experienced enough to deal with it. But this is all quite new for Brighton. And if there was a time to cherry pick playing them, I would choose it after a big European night. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Ajax have been an absolute basket case for the entire season. They've been, you know, a lesson in how not to run a football club. And there will be a sense now that now that Sven Mislintat's gone and Morris Stein's gone, that they will have an opportunity to hear to bounce, to bounce back. And actually, you know, you say this about the fact that we, we looked at Brighton ahead of the season and was like, okay, how are they going to cope with being in Europe and running a Premier League? So they're basically running a four, four front campaign, at least to begin with. And actually it's been their European form, which has really suffered you know, they they lost at home to Ike Athens on the opening day. They drew to Marseille, um, fought back to draw two all, and actually it was quite an impressive second half performance. But they actually been in Europe. They've they've not really set the place alight. They went into that tournament, I think, fourth, fifth favourites to to win it, which is quite wild considering they've never been in European competition before. But you know, it shows what faith there is in this Brighton team and this Brighton squad under Deserby, and and rightly so because they've been brilliant. But, you know, it has been that that suffered rather than their Premier League form. That said, Fulham have a really good record against Brighton in the top flight. I don't. I think we've played six times against them in the Premier League and we've won three and drawn three. So there is that to consider. They've been a team that we have, you know, played well against traditionally. Um, last year, obviously, the smash and grab Man of Solomon goal, the, the 1-1-0 at the Amex, which was uh, an amazing day for, for everybody. But... They look a more complete team now. Even with that being said, nobody has conceded more goals outside of the bottom three than Brighton this season. They've conceded 18 in their nine games. So they're averaging two a goal. Now they average scoring 20, you know, sort of 2.3. So they've scored 22 goals in those nine games. So they do, they do put the ball in the back of the net, but they are susceptible at the back. And whether that plays out in this kind of game is is an interesting one. As you say, the morale boost might add into this as well. See if Fulham can, can kick on and it would be, you know, a massive win here in a stretch of very, very difficult games. 
they haven't been as good, I think, as maybe people expected of them. That 6-1 hammering at the hands of Villa was something that I don't think anyone was was looking at at Brighton and going, oh, wow, wouldn't have nailed that one down. And yeah, I, I think that whilst they remain an incredibly good football team to watch and some of the things that they do tactically and, and the Zerbies instilled in this side are incredibly interesting, they are definitely not flawless. Although I say they come into this game as major favourites, even with a European clash on, on Thursday. Yeah, I mean, looking at their results, it's pretty wild. Um, the both teams to score on Brighton is a is a fairly solid bet. There's actually yeah. only been one game where there where one of the teams hasn't scored, and that was in Brighton's one nil loss in the Carabao Cup to Chelsea. Um, winless in their last five in all competitions. They haven't won since they beat Bournemouth three uh, one. I think Bournemouth went one nil up in that game, and then Brighton came back to win. Um, Seem to remember, I think. Uh, Karim Matoma and Ansu Fati uh, scored about 10 seconds into the second half after coming on, if I'm uh, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, in, in, in that one. But Jack, obviously the problem is Brighton might be leaky at the back, but Fulham have not looked like exposing anyone's defence short of Sheffield United all season. So I guess like Brighton might be looking at this as the perfect opportunity to right some of the defensive wrongs against a side that really, really is struggling to score. Yeah, exactly. And and that's it. It's the it's the irresistible force against the movable object in many ways. <laughs> so we shall see how that plans out. Uh, obviously, there are opportunities to be had here. And look, Fulham created against Spurs. It's worth pointing this out. That there were moments yeah. in that game where Fulham looked like they were cutting Spurs' defence to ribbons at times. And actually, you know, with some a little bit of calm and maybe just a cooler head on the shoulders of both Raul Jimenez and Harry Wilson, maybe things go differently. Now, again, I think that Spurs would have been able to step it up and, and go through the gears if Fulham had pulled one back. But equally, you know, you never know how those kind of things go, especially if a stadium gets nervy, would tend to go having been 2 nil up. So there are opportunities, and I think the Fulham will create against Brighton. It's now a question of kind of getting those opportunities, the players that you trust to actually put the ball in the back of the net. And, you know, Wilson coming on, having not played for the majority of the game and that chance falling to him is maybe a little bit unlucky in, in that he should do better. He doesn't have to check back. But equally, you, you kind of expect a little bit of rustiness having come off the bench. But, you know, if, if you can get those opportunities to fall to Bobby Deckard over Reed, if you can get those opportunities to fall to Willian, then perhaps Fulham have more of a chance of actually breaking that down. And I think that that could be the key here is actually not necessarily who plays nine because I, I don't know if that debate needs to be had right now because I don't think either of them are showing much willing in terms of the only thing that I think separates them is that Raul looks less likely to get sent off um, but in terms of you know can we create and get the wingers into these positions perhaps and maybe that could be the difference as opposed to you know banging your heads against a wall over two number nines who both equally aren't performing as far as I'm concerned. I mean Brighton definitely got a few selection issues um I mean, James Milner got torn an absolute new one by Jeremy Doku on uh, on Saturday, which was a little bit of a weird mismatch. Roberto De Zerbi said when he, he pulled off Milner at half time, and he said, "Oh no, it was a team decision." Like, like no, he wasn't at fault. Like, well, I mean, it's fairly direct. It's a fairly clear culprit here as to why that didn't work. And Solly March um, has picked up an awful injury, which is is horrible to see. He was playing at left back. 
um, in that game. Now, Brighton do have enough cover. They've got the likes of Veltman and Van Heck who are on the bench, who are both, you know, experienced defenders who, who certainly couldn't... You wouldn't want them at fullback, though, either of them. Uh, Veltman a little bit, but even him, I would be wary about playing in, in, on the right of a back four. He did it a little bit when he was at Ajax, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not completely convinced. I think that left-back is the key issue. Stupinan has obviously got an injury. Solly Marsh now in, in that same place, not able to play. I wouldn't be surprised if Tarek Lamptey plays at left-back. He's okay there in the game against FA in, in the Europa League. So I think that might be where... Is Lamptey available, though? Because Lamptey wasn't even on the bench for City. Yeah, I mean, I think a question mark, but I, I'd imagine he will be back for this one. He hasn't featured in any of the discussions around Brighton's players being out. So I'm going to... I'm gonna. I'm going to hedge my bets that he might be back at this point, And that gives them someone. But equally, I don't think that matters because Tarek Lamptey, a brilliant player as he is, an excellent going forward, isn't, you know, naturally left-sided defender and will offer opportunities, especially down the outside for wingers to, to kind of get round him and, and, and cause problems there. So even if he is back and, and in there, and I think he will be, and I think that's where he'll start, I would suggest that that's still the side that Fulham will look to expose. And if, you know, if we are looking at a team where Veltman and Lamptey are the wingbacks or the fullbacks, then I think that that's an opportunity for Fulham down both flanks. And, and I've always noticed with Brighton is that occasionally they can be absolutely ripped apart. We've seen in the past um, few months, obviously there was that famous Everton loss. There was West Ham who went to the Amex and absolutely tore them apart and then Villa obviously a few weeks ago and I mean Villa are a very good side but West Ham and Everton scoring a combined nine goals away from home at your stadium is something to be concerned about there is a way of playing Brighton and it's basically a case of not falling for their traps isn't it yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're a brilliant side in possession and they do really nice things with the ball um, and we've seen so many teams fall to that but I don't know if Fulham will and equally I, I wonder if Brighton will feel they have to play slightly differently you know the, the bait and switch techniques that they have used to such great effect especially against bigger teams probably don't apply to Fulham because I don't think we're going to press that aggressively from the front we haven't done recently obviously we've seen that with a Fulham setup it's often the number 10 who presses whether that be Awobi or Andreas Pereira who, who leads the line and I wonder if just the fact that Fulham might not step into that to try and force it might be a slightly different way that Brighton feel they need to set up. Now, that might be to our disadvantage because if they start getting the ball into these areas, I really like Carlos Baleba, who they brought in uh, from Liga to replace Caicedo. I think he's going to grow into a really, really good footballer. I mean, they very rarely miss in the transfer market. Simon Odingra, who was out on loan last year, Union saint Juar, I believe, in, and really, really did tear things up in Belgium. He was, he's a really good player as well. So, you know, you've got these players coming in, one new and one returning from loan, who have the ability to, to mix it up and make things happen. And so when you have, when you do force them to do different things, it's a little bit tricky, you know, in that you don't know quite how Brighton are going to play because they have so many different options. You know, they can go through the middle and play like a, a Ferguson with a Joao Pedro playing off him as a 10. They can change that up so that they try and get in behind and then they look at trying to expose you via Dingra and Matoma. They look at getting Pascal Gross on the ball and dominating games. There are different ways that this Brighton side can operate. But I think that Fulham have to be stout 
in their defensive ability. And, and to be honest, aside from the two mistakes, it did feel like Fulham were, you know, pretty good defensively uh, against Tottenham. And I know that's easy to say apart from the mistakes, but I think when you look at the game cohesively as a whole, there was some pretty stout defending in there from Fulham's back line. I think that Castagna has started into this side really nicely. That Anthony Robinson recovered well after a bit of a wobbly start in that game, I thought. And generally, I think that our defensive line has been something that we can be relatively proud of. And therefore, that's the way to kind of try and sucker this team in and hit them on the break when they are playing with players out of position in that back line. Yeah, and it worked so many times on Monday that our attack started through Jao Polinia, I felt like. It was so often, it was... Polina winning the ball, particularly in the first half, Polina winning the ball and getting it often to Willian or Pereira. And obviously what was done with it from there was, was part of the issue. But Fulham made opportunities, had openings. And I imagine there's going to be a lot of that on, on Sunday is a lot of Brighton trying to break us down, Polina winning challenges and hopefully Fulham's bringing in out attacks from there because it seems to be the, uh, and Jao's got this amazing ability to not only tackle, but tackle and then somehow get it to a Fulham player with, with an unbelievable level of accuracy. It's kind of his his magic skill really that he's able to do from us. From a Fulham point of view, Jack, that the obvious problem uh, against Spurs was Bassey being exposed um, on the right-hand side of defence. Spurs played to that. Brighton aren't stupid. They will try and do the same. Do we make a change here? I'm not really sure what the change could be, to be honest. I mean, annoyingly, if you had Kenny Tete, maybe even you could consider putting Timothy Castagna in its centre back. He can play that role. Um, or Tete, to be honest, uh, especially, you know, if it is going to be that where where your one on one winger is cutting inside to make things happen. I, yeah, I, I think the only feasible Polina. option is Polina, but what do you lose from the midfield by doing that? And I think that what you'd lose is complete control. You'd cede this midfield to Brighton and I don't think that's a wise move. So I'm going to suggest that he sticks with what he had on on Wednesday, on Monday night and they'll look to improve the patterns. And, and look, you know, Peter mentioned it there and I know the boys and Dan Cook in particular spoke about it on, on Tuesday's pod. But it's not just on Bassi this. Yes, there are some poor passes. And I think what the frustrating thing about the first goal was that we had the ball and we had the free kick. Sit on it and just see that out. Don't try and play the quick ball there. It doesn't make any sense. But equally, if we know that Bassi is trying to make you know those passes and struggling to get maybe the distance he would do on his left foot, then actually, you know, your midfield has to drop. Your number nine has to come shorter to be able to try and hold the ball up. Lukic has to sit into there and actually make a, a shield wall so that if it does come back at us, we're not overexposed in the middle. All of those things matter, and it's about working out those patterns. And obviously, they're new, right? So it's not just the fact that all of these players didn't quite get to the point. They were, they're, they're also working on a brand new pattern in that we've been for so long, it's been, okay, Diop will have the ball there. We know what he's going to do with it. We know what he's capable of on the ball. You know, he's capable of doing in a negative sense as well as in a positive sense. But generally, you know, he's either going to go driving through the midfield, which he loves doing, and still scares the life out of me every time he does it. Um, but it was all he's, he's going to try and play that ball down the channel. With Bassi there, you're learning something different and you're trying to work out the patterns between Reem, Bassi, Castagna, and the midfielder in front of him, which is okay, was Lukic, who you know hasn't started all that many games for Fulham either. So all of these things matter. They all count. 
And I think that when you start to work those triangles, those little combinations a little bit better, there won't be as much panic on the ball. And that would probably help Fulham to develop that. You know, we you'd hope that they're sitting in there looking at that pattern and working on it time and time again in training after what happened on Monday. And you'd hope that therefore it would improve. Yeah. And, and any other changes that, that you would make? Um, I guess, you know, a Wobi impressed in the 10. Um, maybe you someone like Harry Wilson, if if the left hand to side of defence is going to be an issue uh, for Brighton, because he might get a little bit more um, attacking joy than, than a Bobby Deckard over Reed would be. We don't need to worry massively about a marauding left-sided defender um, probably in this game. They well, would be if the it two is Lampdie, then you might because he actually got both assists in that game against Marseille from left-back. So it, it's worth considering that. But I mean, I, I would still, and I stand by, I would start a front four of Bobby in the nine, Harry Wilson on the right, Awobi in the 10 and Willian on the, on the left. But he's not going to he's do not that. going to do that. So I would suggest I think Bobby Deckard over Reed keeps his place if Tarek Lamptey is past fit. Um, if he doesn't, then I wonder if they throw Wilson in there to try and expose it. Yeah. All right. Uh, we can take another break afterwards. We're going to quickly look at some of your emails. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy here with Jack Collins. Thank you to everyone that continues to back Fulhamish, by the way, in the Fulhamish community. Massively uh, important uh, that you guys that back us um, and allow us to keep funding all of our pods, articles and videos. We hugely support, uh, appreciate everyone that supports us so far. If you'd like to join uh, our Fulhamish community, you get access to our Fulhamish Telegram groups where you can chat all things Fulham um, as a little bonus, really. But the main thing is... is um, to those of you who help us out, thank you so much. If you'd like to join, there's a link in the description of this podcast or you can find all the details at fullamish.co.uk. Let's quickly answer some emails before we go. Uh, I like this one from Sam Brandsatter because I hadn't massively thought about this. Uh, Good day, chaps. I wanted to know your thoughts on the upcoming African Cup of Nations as Fulham will no doubt lose Bassi Awobi and then potentially Balo Torre. With an already tight squad, are we now understaffed for this period do you think we'll see any new faces in to cover these two positions currently without Diop losing Bassi would be massive and also a bit of a shame to lose a Wobi after he's settling in I'd love to hear your thoughts and that's Sam from New Zealand yeah exactly um there there is a, a real concern I think over this because it's it's not just you know at this point we're looking at players who if not starting, are are very much part of the kind of setup that is definitely in the 14. So Bassi, I think, at that point, will have been fully settled. Now, whether Fulham can work a, a right centre-back back to full fitness in Tosin or look at making cover there in, the sum, in, in January might help to just ease that one off a little bit. Um, but it, it puts a lot of pressure on the two Americans in particular. I think in Tim Ream and... And Anthony Robinson, who both are basically going to be there going, okay, we can't really have a breather in this period. And that's tricky. Um, look, I think that they'll be, we'll be okay in the 10. I think we're relatively well stacked there. And I still think there is a, a case to be made that at some point, Harry Wilson should maybe get a run there. But equally, Fulham can transform to a back, well, a back three, a, a midfield three that has Lukic, Reed, and Polina in it. Tom Kearney's able to play in those roles as well. So I'm less worried about Awobi, even if his importance is growing in this side. But I think cover at both left back and left centre back look incredibly light with both Bassi and Balatore gone. 
And that's going to be something that Fulham need to just keep an eye on. Yeah, and it's a hugely important set of fixtures. Now, it depends on how far um, Nigeria go. and Senegal go, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it starts on the 13th of January, which actually is currently the day we're due to go away to Stamford Bridge. Okay, uh, as much as I like to joke, that's probably not one that you'd put down as a as a banker of three points. But the run here um, towards the end of January, early February, Everton at home, Burnley away, Bournemouth at home. Um, now, we'd only miss them for all three of those matches if one of them got to the final. The final is on the 11th of February. But yeah, they, they are three gigantic games now when you look at this season. So certainly one to think about. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think not... Nigeria will qualify as well. They've, they're in a group with the Ivory Coast who are, who are hosts. But the rest of that group looks a little bit soft in terms of Equatorial Guinea and Guinea-Bissau. But Senegal are in the group of death with Cameroon, Guinea and Gambia. I believe all four of those teams got to the quarterfinals of the last African Cup of Nations. So there is something to think about there in, in terms of Senegalese qualification. You'd still back them to do it. They qualified as top seeds, but that is a tricky group and AFCON is notoriously unpredictable. Yeah, there's actually quite a good chance, I think, looking at it, that Nigeria could play Senegal in the uh, in the round of last 16. So we might there might be a match there where it's like, well, we get one of them or two of them back, but definitely one of them um, we lose. And, and no offence to Balotori, I think Bassi and Awobi are the ones we probably want back the quickest, unless Robinson's injured, in which case we'll definitely want Balotori back uh, quickest. Uh, this one from Edward Clark, he said, uh, amidst a very intense and Tottenham press, I thought Lukic looked pretty sharp, good at receiving on the half turn, press resistant where others couldn't retain the ball at all. I think it was his best game yet in a Fulham shirt. Do you see Lukic starting to claim a starting spot moving forward or will it remain a situational pick based on the game? Cheers from Ed. I thought Lukic was brilliant in the first half, short of maybe not offering enough Abassi for that first goal. Yep. But when he got on the ball, he was incredibly sensible and smart and sharp with it. And he, there were some chances that were created basically based on the work and the, the very selfless work of Lukic. Yeah, I, I thought he was excellent as well. He, he does need to be just called out a little bit for his positioning for definitely the first Bassi goal and a little bit for the second. But I thought that generally he was he was phenomenal and one, one of Fulham's best players on the night. He looks so composed at the moment. And suddenly you're like, oh, this is the player that Fulham were very excited to sign as opposed to, you know, the, the Lukic that we've seen. He also seems to have settled, and I, I like him a little bit deeper in this midfield. I, th I think as a 10, he lacks a little bit in terms of what he, he's offering because Fulham don't tend to use that third man run into the box, which was quite useful in his time at Torino. Um, but it's not really something that we see Fulham try to utilise. So him a little bit deeper, and it means that our midfield now looks incredibly press resistant, right? And in, both him and Polina look very, very smart on the ball in those kind of areas. And I think that he will start to nail down a starting spot. There is definitely still a place for Harrison Reed here. And look, we've said this so many times that a player comes in, challenges Harrison Reed, and Harrison Reed steps up and ups his game again. And I think there is definitely a role for him in this side still. But I think that Lukic has done enough to earn at least to start this weekend. And it might be very, very important in terms of actually trying to break this Brighton team down through the middle.
Um, and finally, this email from Rick Cardis. Um, he said, interesting comment on the American broadcast of the Spurs match by Danny Higginbottom. He said that Tim Ream, the more experienced player, should have played out of position rather than Bassey. And Rick said he wondered the same thing. He said, I guess better to make one change rather than two. Maybe that's Marco's thinking. Uh, what do you all have to say? And that's thanks from Rick. I mean, I, I don't think he's massively wrong. I, I, but obviously, it's a very easy to say in hindsight maybe the one change rather than two is is very pertinent here but I do think that Ream would have maybe been a little bit more sensible with some of those passes maybe um I, I think that one change rather than two thing is really important obviously just a minute ago we were talking about patterns right and learning those combinations that allow you to build out from the back yeah and and trying to deal with them and so much of Fulham's build-up play revolves around Ream Robinson, especially when we're playing out. Bream and Robinson winning it, getting into that area, getting the ball into a midfielder and then allowing Fulham to, to counter down that left-hand side using Willian and Robinson's pace going forward. And I think that when you consider how much of it is based around that, it would be a very risky move to then switch the whole system out. Now, there is obviously a, a time and a place where defenders have to be able to cover on both sides, etc., etc. But... I think changing more than one centre-back at a time is usually a pretty risky move, especially when so much of our build-up play comes through Tim Ream. So, yeah, I, I disagree with Higginbottom, although I do take the point that a more nuanced head perhaps looks for an alternative out in that situation. Yeah, um, first time that Danny Higginbottom has got such a shout out on Fulhamish as far as I can uh, remember. Right, that'll do for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Fulhamish will be back on Monday uh, with George reviewing everything that happens in the Brighton game. And then the Thursday Club will be back this time next week, slightly later, uh, because of course we will be looking to try and include everything that happens in Wednesday night's Carabao Cup game against Ipswich. Um, Jack Collins thank you very much for coming on today no thank you for having me sam always a pleasure yeah and if you want more reaction to the marco silver transfer plenty of discussion on the latest jack and joe show which is available on youtube give the youtube a subscribe if you haven't already and uh yeah that's it from us today have a lovely weekend whatever you're doing if you're heading down to the south coast good luck i mean i've been trying to work out how on earth you get to farmer stadium without a train it seems a little bit of a disgrace that there isn't literally any trains uh, it's gonna be such a nightmare but anyway if we're if you're going down good luck and uh, potentially see you there if not have a good weekend anyway and come on you whites you whites